0: If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've begun a series, we're almost almost actually halfway through it, over halfway through it, uh, looking at life in the suburbs. Uh, And if you're just joining us perhaps for the first time today, uh, I want to give you a chance to kind of catch up on where we've been. Uh, What I've been looking at is this reality that uh, life as a follower of Jesus in the suburbs must look different than a life that is faithful in any other type of community, What I'm trying to say is that I believe strongly that God cares about the places that we live. And I believe that the places that we live, that we don't have to live in a certain type of place, or that that one place isn't better than another in terms of how we can live faithfully for God. Whether we live in an urban core or a rural setting or a suburban place, the challenge is not so much about where we live, but how we live. So what I've been hoping to share with us as as suburbanites in this part of the city is what a life of faithfulness looks like and to try to scratch the surface of that. So we've talked in the past weeks about the challenge of busyness. Uh, We talked about how difficult it is to find rest in the suburbs, a place that was designed as peaceful, and we talked about ways to find that. We also talked about how we keep open house. And how we create a home environment, whatever our home looks like, that keeps a door that welcomes other people into our lives. And my, my statement to you was your, your life doesn't have to be Pinterest perfect. Or you don't have to kind of pair the wine and cheese just right for God's spirit to show up when you invite your neighbors over. The more important thing is that we invite neighbors into our life and cultivate that. Uh, last week in particular, we talked about individualism. And how a lot of what we see, for all the good that suburbanism does, we've seen that there can be this individualistic nature of our life where we recognize that all these things that I'm acquiring are about me. And so what I've hoped to do was not just show the negative aspects, but to truly show the positive and the good and to show a faithful way forward as followers of Jesus. Uh, And so this week we'll continue that. And we're going to lean into what faithfulness in the suburbs looks like. And we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. Now, there's a part of this that I'm going to ask you to read out loud together with me. And the reason I want you to do that is when this particular uh, verse was written, if you look at it in your Bible, you'll notice that a part of it stands out and looks more like a poem than kind of lines of text. And it's because part of this verse in Philippians is a song or a hymn that the early church would have sung. And so when Paul, who wrote the letter to the Philippians, is writing this letter, he references this song. And and I think that's really neat because this letter was written maybe 20 or 30 years after Jesus died and rose again. So the song that Paul is referencing would have been one that the church sang just after the resurrection of Jesus, just in those years that came afterwards. And, and while we don't have the lyrics to it, he didn't jot down sheet music in the margins when he wrote it down. We at least have the words. And so it's not something that we would have just said, it's something that we would have read. So I'll give you your cue on when to follow in. So Paul writes, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in the Spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love being united and agreeing with each other. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And so here on this next slide, I want to invite you to join your voice with mine. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him the name above all names, so that the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, thank you. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Good singing. That was good. Jared, can you work out a tune for that one? It's a little complex. All right. Well, bring that bring that offering to us next week. Well, that'll be the gift, right? We're, we'll try singing that. Yeah. Um, so that would have originally been a song that they had sung together. So when he referenced it, it was familiar. But it was also a song that told a particular story, and it gives us an example of Jesus' life. And, and it really does two different things. On one hand, it takes us on the, G, the Jesus journey that goes down, which is Jesus humbles himself, he empties himself. So we see this kind of downward trend. And then it also takes us on an upward trend, where Jesus is exalted by God. So we've got this kind of V-shape to our scripture this morning, and that, that's important to know. So, I want to look first at uh, verses 6 through 8 and talk about what Jesus did for humanity. Verse 7 tells us that Jesus emptied himself, that he took on the form of a slave. And maybe when you read that particular verse this morning, you kind of bristled a little bit uh, because we read slavery much different today than it was read when Paul wrote it. Uh, We think of the American slave trade and the atrocity that that. Was and continues to impact today in race relations, right when Paul writes this, the word that he was used was a servant, and what we would be more akin to think of is someone who waits tables, a server I mean, how many of you have or or were a server at some point in time? Right? Respect for you all right <laughs> you all know how to tip probably too <laughs> right uh, and you understand it 's not always the server 's fault right about the food you know uh, so Paul would have been more akin to talking about that kind of service, where you are there with someone else and you are offering yourself as, as a gift and as a service to someone else. And no matter how that customer might respond to you on any given particular day, just like a Chick-fil-A, it's still your pleasure to serve, right? right. So when we talk about that, that's what it's saying. That, that when God in heaven comes down to earth, instead of the status That Jesus could have carried as God himself on earth, he chose to to humble himself to not lean into his status or his abilities or what he had, but to lean more into his humanity and to choose to serve others. When we all know in reality, we should have been the ones to serve God on earth in the person of Jesus. So Paul is simply reminding them of this this process that Jesus does where as God, he comes to earth in order to be a server, a servant of others. And the image that we would typically use for that is the image of the towel and the basin. We remember that on the night before Jesus was uh, to be crucified or or turned over and then crucified, he gathered his disciples in the upper room, and he he took a towel and a basin that was off to the side, and he began to wash their feet. Which, if that sounds gross to you then, it, it was as gross back then too. right? Except worse, because like, they didn't have nice shoes and some socks. They had uh, just some sandals and some dirty feet. Like think Birkenstocks, right? And then dirty feet because you're walking around in a lot of dust. And that was not Jesus' job. That wasn't even the disciples' job. That was the job of the host or the, servants, or, or the host's servant. The job of washing those who were coming to the meal's feet was reserved for the lowest person. And Jesus gets up from the table on the night he's going to be betrayed. He takes a towel and wraps it around himself. He kneels down with a pitcher in a basin and washes the disciples' feet. And rightly so, they object. But he does it anyways. And so in Jesus, we get this picture of what it looks like when God comes to earth and chooses to serve others rather than leaning on the status of that he had himself and could have leaned on. And in the next verse, in verse 8, it goes on to tell us that he humbled himself even to the point of death, submitting to death on a cross. He didn't run from the cross. He didn't try to skirt around it. He addressed his feelings of, Lord, if it's possible, I'd rather not go this route. But he willingly chose the cross for our life, and for the life of all. And at any point, Jesus could have, as we might say, pulled the ripcord and parachuted out of there or called down angels or quickly turned the entire scenario around, but he doesn't. And so what Paul wants us to see is that in the same way that Christ humbles himself and serves others and doesn't escape when things get hard but follows through with the difficult things, you probably see where I'm going with this. He's beginning to set up a model of what the life of faith looks like for us. And in my mind, this gives us a perfect model for how we can live faithfully in our community today. What God does on Jesus' behalf is to exalt him. Jesus could have exalted himself. Right? He could have lifted up himself and said, like, you all don't understand who I am. Like, this is who I am. You should worship me. But the only time that Jesus is quote-unquote promoted is when God promotes him. So after his death, it's God who resurrects Jesus back into life. It's God who lifts up Jesus as the example, as the resurrected son. And so that also gives us a model of how we might live too in in this time that invites us and and calls us and, and I think actually encourages us to promote ourselves and to lift ourselves up. What I'm saying this morning is that Jesus chose to take a risk and become vulnerable by living in this world by speaking God's truth, and by serving others. And Jesus does all of this so that you and I will have the opportunity to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this song points us to our beginning point in the life of faith, that our beginning point is our own confession that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. And that's a decision that maybe you made as a a young child, or, or maybe you grew into that, or maybe you've come to that place as an adult, or maybe you would say, I don't know if I've ever confessed or, or truly made Jesus the Lord of my life. Well, that's what this passage invites us to do this morning, is to reflect on that, to remember that decision. It invites us to make that decision, and then to live from that place as we go through our life. So in Jesus' example, uh, That's what I want to look at this morning is how Jesus' example can instruct us in our life. But I want to talk for a minute about what vulnerability is not, because I just said the word vulnerability, and I believe that Jesus is calling us to live vulnerably in the suburbs. Uh, And just like that word slave in the beginning, it can have different meanings depending on how we look at it. Vulnerability does not, in this case, mean someone who is weak or a pushover. Jesus is not inviting us to be weak or to be pushovers or to just let others kind of trample over us. Vulnerability does not also mean that we that I'm going to kind of end this sermon by saying, like, I want you to go to your places of work or the places that you usually go tomorrow and share your deepest, darkest secret with the person in the cubicle next to you, right? (laughs) Someone said nope. (laughs) That's good, yes. So good news, we're not going there, right? Vulnerability sometimes has meant oversharing or just becoming a doormat for someone else. I want to offer you a different definition, and this one comes from Andy Crouch. He says, vulnerability is exposure to meaningful risk. Not just exposure to risk, and not just risk, but exposure to meaningful risk. And I love this definition for its simplicity, but I also love how it exemplifies the life that Jesus lived. When God becomes human, Jesus exposes himself to a meaningful risk by becoming human. He exposes himself to meaningful risk whenever he stands on the side of the oppressed, whenever he took time with the people that society says were not worthwhile, were not important, or were too sick and diseased to be with. Jesus exposed himself to meaningful risk by being with those people over there. And Jesus exposed himself to a very meaningful risk on the cross. So, do you see how in Jesus' life he begins to model this particular idea? And I think it's also worth noting that Jesus also spends time over here with, with community leaders, with those who are rich, with those who are powerful, with those who have influence. And so, for us, as followers of Jesus, My invitation to you and God's invitation to us to live with meaningful risk is a challenge to our status. Now, Paul knows something about status. Uh, Paul later in Philippians would write this. I got excited. Will you take me back a slide? Thank you. He says, though I have good reason for this kind of confidence, if anyone else has reason to put their confidence in physical advantages, I have more. And so let me begin Paul's resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am from the people of Israel, and not just that, the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. With respect to the law, I was a Pharisee. With respect to devotion in the faith, I harassed the church, which from Paul's pre-Jesus point of view was a good thing. With respect to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as loss. For the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And when I read this, I see a man who is living for Jesus in such a way where he has status, and he didn't even mention that he was a Roman citizen, which would have bumped him up a few more pegs. What he's saying is, I've got status up here, and like Jesus, I choose not to use that for my own gain, but as a service and a ministry to others. And so I can think this morning, and I kind of checked back at my Twitter handle, which I don't use, so don't follow me there if you found me on there, um, but also like my, my Instagram and Facebook profiles. And, and I, I was reminded that I've got a couple of statuses that at least in some circles can kind of bump me up a few notches. For example, I don't just have a bachelor's degree, but I also have a graduate degree. From a seminary uh, and in terms of kind of the pastoral status in the Methodist church I'm, I'm not a local pastor I'm not a um, provisional candidate I'm a, a fully ordained elder in the United Methodist church which is the highest level that you can go in terms of ordination I've got the the opportunity that I would say the right to put reverend in front of my name which honestly still looks weird when mail comes to the reverend Brian Johnson it's weird to me uh, makes my wife laugh still so I, I could easily say that in certain circles, I have certain statuses. I have certain privileges afforded me. I've had certain opportunities, and I could easily kind of work in a realm up here. And what the Scripture invites myself and us to do is to consider the statuses. So so in, in your head this morning, just take off for yourself a couple of things that put you above others that that are your statuses, that are the things that you have done or earned the rights, the responsibilities, the things that you have that have put you kind of a little bit higher up. Have you made a couple of lists in your head? Um, Things that that you have done? As as I look out, like I I know most of you all, I think you're really great people, and and so I feel like you all are kind of up here maybe like a little bit higher too. And so what Paul is inviting us to do is to be aware of those things. But what Paul and Jesus don't do is simply to say that None of those things matter. I believe what Paul and Jesus do is they use the opportunities that they have in service of others instead of themselves. What I mean by this way is I could use the title of reverend to, to get and accomplish certain things. I could use my status in the United Methodist Church to kind of lord over others who are still further down that totem pole, so to speak, right? You could use your statuses, your opportunities, your privileges, whatever you have, you could use those things as a way of standing on top of someone else, right? As a way of kind of putting yourself up here. And what Paul is inviting us to do is to see these things as ways that we have influence to serve others. The experiences, the gifts, the opportunities that you and I have had, whether a lot or a little bit, are ways that God has equipped us to serve others. It's influence that he's given to you and to me, not for our own selfish growth, not for our own kind of kingdom building, but in service to others, in the same way that Jesus used his and humbled himself to go and to serve others. And when Jesus got to those others, he didn't pretend that he wasn't God. He offered healing. He offered community. He offered hope. He used the status that he has as God on earth to bring those who are far away from God closer in, to say you may have been placed on the outside, but God sees you as someone on the inside. You may have been told you're not a child of God, but Jesus would say that you are a child of God. You may have been told that you don't deserve grace or that that's not for you because of something or anything in your life, whether done to you or just something about who you are. And Jesus and Paul and us together would come in to say, you have value, you are part You are as deserving of grace as everyone else. And so what I I hope that you see as we read this is that Jesus is inviting us through this hymn, Paul is inviting us through this hymn to see the things that have happened to us in our life, for good or for bad, as opportunities to help others connect to God. Each of you has a story to share with others that can help out. There are things good and things bad that have happened to you in your life. And what we want to be clear about, we've talked about this earlier this year, God is not the author of bad things, right? God doesn't give people cancer. What God does invite us to do is to see these things happening to us and to find a way to say, this is my experience, and this is where I'm finding God in the worst place in life. And to allow that to be the testimony to the person that we meet at Target, at work, who's also going through a challenging time to say, I'm not perfect, but I've encountered Jesus who is helping me to find a way through this. This this may sound a bit crass, but the best quote that I could think of for this comes from the other theologian, Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. Right? <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. And I know that was said in a Marvel film, but I've always resonated with that because it reminds us that With whatever we have, for good or for bad in our life, God is there with you and with me. And with that power or influence, we have a responsibility to be distributors of God's grace to others. In suburban terms, we have a responsibility to not take everything that that we have or that comes into us and try to make it for the advancement of the plot of land that we live on or or for the advancement of, of our apartment or our home or our life. There's nothing wrong with that, but we want to ask ourselves, are are we also distributing the gifts that God has given to you and to me to others? And as I think about this particular conversation and, and this congregation, I know that all of us have at some point been healed or blessed or saved or we've had God experienced in our life, not just for the sake of ourselves, but for others. And so the question I want to ask us this morning is: who does our status primarily serve? Does all, do all those things that set us apart from others, are they primarily benefiting us and our family or, or our community group? Or, or are they extending out in service to others also? My thought is, is that these The blessings that God bestows upon us are not simply intended just to live within ourselves. And I'm slowly learning in my own life of faith that what God is doing in my life is for my healing or or my salvation or or my blessing, but it certainly doesn't stop there. It's It's for me to be able to say, here's what God has done in my life, not through anything that I've done, not because I've accomplished these things in life, but simply because I, like you, I'm a child of God. And I believe that this can be one of the hardest things about faithfully living in the suburbs is there are so many subtle ways where we are taught and told that we can kind of keep creeping up and the higher we kind of get up this ladder, whatever it looks like for you, the more faithful we have been or the more we've accomplished. And so what Jesus does is actually says, well, all those things, we surrender those in order to find ways to serve others. And I'm encouraged this morning because I I feel like I've already seen this in you all. In the life of our congregation, I'm encouraged because I've already seen ways that that you have offered the gifts, the resources, the talents, the opportunities, the abilities that you have in service of others. And so I just want to offer this to you. I've seen as we've had new families in our church uh, with new babies being born where you all have signed up to, to bring a meal or to provide something for them in that time. Uh, in the short life of our church, we're only uh, less than, we're, about, we're almost two years old. We've only been worshiping for a couple of months. So we've had a few babies, and you all have brought meals to them. Uh, I see it with the group of people who, whenever you submit a prayer request, have volunteered to say, I'll pray for those folks. And so in a confidential way, we, we have a community of people who say that as I pray, I want to make sure that my prayers go beyond me to the needs that others have too. I've seen it in the generosity of people in our community of faith who give generously and have never once come up to say, now that I gave that gift, here's what I'd like in return. Your generosity to simply give to God's mission and God's vision without expecting some kind of payback on your end. I see it each week when volunteers come into this space and help set up, and, and like magic. By the way, like on a Sunday morning, like none of this stuff is here. Everything that you see around you, like none of it is here, and I do not do all this myself. There's no way. Uh, each Sunday, we have anywhere from, from seven to, to 15 volunteers who help set up this room, who help set up the coffee, who help greet, and then we have a whole bunch kind of on the other side of this wall with green shirts who help with the kids. And we have some teachers who are paid for consistency, but we have a lot of people just like some of you who are here today who volunteer their time and their talent to serve with the kids. And a lot of them are like, I don't have a clue what to do with that. Like, that seems scary. Like, I'll, I'll serve coffee, but like, please don't put me with the two-year-old, right? <laughs> That's me. Uh, but, but I've seen that, that generous self-giving that says, this is uncomfortable and this is a risk, but I'm willing to do this because of what Jesus has done for me in my life. And so what I'm trying to say this morning is I see this behavior in you and I simply want to call it out and affirm it and encourage you to continue to find ways to push yourself into meaningful risk on Jesus' behalf. I want to invite us to think about what that looks like in our life and in our home. And so that's what it looks like for the internal community is that when we gather together, When we're separate, we find ways to care for each other. As the Bible would put, if anyone is sick or needs healing or needs help, reach out to the community and ask for their prayers and their help. And let's be honest, it's a lot easier to give help than to ask for help. Am I right? Right. If you're the one who's on, on crutches, it's hard to say, I need help. It's a lot easier to be the one who say, let me get the door for you. Let me offer this. But I'd like to create the kind of church community where we have that vulnerability that says, like, life Stinks. I was looking around for kids. But, so life stinks right now, or life is really bad, and I need help. And the church community to say, we're here for you, and you'll be here for us when we need it too. But I want to also think this morning about how this behavior extends out into the rest of the world and into Horizon West as a whole. Because when Paul wrote this, this was a church community, and he cared how they cared about themselves, but he also cared how they cared about their society. And so when we think about um, Horizon West and the opportunities that we have, one of the biggest questions that I still get uh, as a new church is this one. Like, oh, yeah, you meet at the movie theater. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, like, where will you guys build a building? I mean, that's still the biggest question is, like, okay, so when will you build a building? And I think the underlying question, sometimes innocently, is, like, so when will you be a real church? Right, because, like, a movie theater, like, that's cute and that's fun. That's not a real church, is it? Like we need a steeple, we need some stained glass, we need the, 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 the attributes, the statuses, the things that we know make a church. And we've been conditioned as, as Americans in the West and as people who live in America to see church as a physical space. And we've talked about this before, when the Bible has always defined church as a community of people. And and so the problem there is that we've looked around and we look for these things and we begin to look at it and and I begin to see that land costs like a million bucks an acre Um, and and I begin to see the enormous cost that we would have to put down in order to build a a, a church that would give us the status in the community. Um, I've even had people say like, well, I love the idea of what you're doing. Like when you get a physical space, when you get a church building, like let me know and I'll be there. Uh, It's like, hey, shout out to all of you all who are here when we're still in the movie theater. And like, shout out to the parents who baptized their kids in theater one, right? Which after this is showing, I don't know, like the Pikachu movie, right? right? But you all see this as holy space because we gather here and God's spirit is present with us. And so I believe that as we do that, what we're saying is that our status in the community is not at this time about what we can build. I would love to do something like that one day, mostly so we're not hauling trailers and rolling carts around all morning and all afternoon. But that's where we are right now. But I also believe this points to something bigger. And it's a question that I asked one of the major developers of the area. Because if you didn't know, this entire area has already been master planned. So even though there's still a lot of trees and orange groves, there's already a plan for what's going to go there. You know this because... You've probably seen in your neighborhoods where if there's not a school, there's already a plot for a school, right? Those who live in Summer Lake, you know where it's going to go next year. There's already a plan for all of those different village centers and communities, for every apartment, for every home and area. And so I asked the developer, I said, well, when they designed this area back in the 80s, where did they plan for the churches to go? Because that would really help our planning. It got quiet. And these particular developers are people of faith. And they said, they didn't plan for it right? You're busted, yeah. <laughs> they they plan for everything else, for the hospitals, the homes, different types. They plan for, for where publics goes, the community centers, all those kinds of things. And it seems like it was just an afterthought that, well, where will the churches, the mosques, the temples, the places of faith for the people of faith, where will they go? Which presents a challenge to the people of faith, right? But I believe also highlights the, the waning influence of Christianity and this idea of Christendom in the United States. And let me put it this way. We have, as Christians for a long period of time in the United States, had an automatic place at the table. We had a status at the table. So we could walk into any form or venue, and there was, there was a certain respect that was allowed. You were a part of the community. So if they planned for the post office and the hospital and the church... And you can see this if you're a fan of the Carousel of Progress. Sorry, sorry. Not the Carousel of Progress, the People Mover. Uh, Because the People Mover at Tomorrowland in Magic Kingdom takes you through uh, one of Walt's early visions for the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, for what the future would look like. And if you look closely at that prototype, and it's quick, they have mapped out at least, what I can count, four or five different churches we do not live in that world anymore. We do not live in a world where the civil engineers and those who are planning it automatically think, where will the people of faith gather? And we can lament that and we can be sad about that. We can be sad that, that our privilege and our status as Christians in the community has dropped over the years. might be worth asking how that happened. Or we can see that that becomes a natural progression where we humble ourselves where we empty ourselves, where we don't assume that society is going to hand us as followers of Jesus everything that we might want. And instead of expecting that people will carve out space for us physically, we can choose as a community to be servants of others. And I believe in doing that, changing our focus, we come a lot closer to the vision that Paul has for us in the song, to the hymn that we've sung or said. And I can put it this way Uh, Buildings for churches give status, but Jesus Christ changes lives. Church buildings have influenced and shaped the faith of many, myself included. I still miss an opportunity to sit in a beautifully adorned sanctuary with a cross to focus on, with stained glass caricatures and murals of people of faith over the centuries. I miss that. And there is something to be said for sacred space, especially in the busyness of a suburb. But I believe that what God is calling us to is to lower our status and to remember that the thing that changes lives is Jesus Christ. The reason I am here this morning and not doing what I had planned to do after college and et cetera is because God called me. And the reason that you're here this morning is because God has or or is doing something in your life that makes you say, church is important to me because it's where the community gathers and it's where I can connect or reconnect after a busy week with Jesus. So as faithful people in the suburbs who, who hope to have the status of saying, oh yeah, Citrus Church, they have the building over there, and it's beautiful because in my head it's going to be beautiful, right? right? We remember that's something that we might aspire to, but the thing that changes lives is Jesus Christ. And my hope is that we can always keep that in the forefront. Uh, So this morning, what we've been looking at or over the last couple of weeks are these things called counter-liturgies. And the idea of counter-liturgy is it's it's counter to the culture, um, and it's a way to live differently. So I've given you the short titles up here. If you want to read a little paragraph about each of these, visit today at citrus.org. It's our digital bulletin. And what this is designed to do is for you to say, like, okay, all that sounded good. I'm, I'm on board with what you're saying and what the Scripture says. Like, what do I do with that on Monday morning? Right. Okay. So each one of these gives you a practice or a thing that you can do to help to live and make vulnerable risks this week. For example, uh, taking stock invites us to see where we um, are resisting the risk that God may be calling us to. Uh, making a list of safe people or people in our community who we can take a risk with, but we know that they are safe, right? We can share our faith with them, and we know that they will be accepting and welcoming of that. Staying curious means that we're looking for places in the community, outside the church community, where we can be a part of a community meeting or an HOA. We all know that HOAs need Jesus, right? Y'all been to those meetings, okay? Right? They do not run like this. Um, But staying curious invites us to look at our communities with eyes of Jesus that see the opportunities in the people. Uh, Commitment to church is an invitation to make being a part of the gathered faith community a priority for yourself over the next couple of months. And then finding neighborhood watering holes, which is a unique challenge for us in this community because we don't have those built quite yet, right? But they're there. So keep an eye out this week for where people are naturally gathering together. And sharing life. So, I want to encourage you to take a look at that to find something that you can do this week to help you to take those vulnerable risks that invite us to see the kingdom that Jesus is leading. And so, as we as we do that this morning, one of the things that I mentioned earlier that I think is important and valuable um, is the opportunity to pray. And so, on the front of your tables, there the little table, there's an orange card, and there's a spot that says, uh, can we pray for you, Or it says prayers. Uh, and I, I shared earlier that there's a team of people who gather together regularly to do that. Uh, so I want to share this particular verse with you. There we go. It comes from later in Paul's verse to the Philippians. He says, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. By the way, you only say don't be anxious about anything to people who are anxious, okay? Rather, bring up all of your requests to God in prayers and petitions along with giving thanks. Then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. So if there is something that is giving you anxiety that you are worried about, or if, as Paul says, there's something that you can give thanks for this week, would you write it down on that orange card, in part as an expression to God of your prayer, but also so that we as a community can pray for you? So let me give us a moment of silent prayer, and then I'll, I'll close us with a prayer together, uh, with the Lord's Prayer, which will be up on the screen. So let's pray.